Hi, my name is Janelle. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 32, 22 through 27. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. The word of the Lord. I'm Judy Downing, and the New Testament reading is found in 1 John chapter 3. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God, and that's who we are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how we'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him, and in seeing him, become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming Stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model for our own. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Hi, my name is Becca. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John fifteen twelve through 16. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I heard from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. The gospel of the Lord. Maybe seated. There was a study done recently where they asked participants to sit in a room that was totally empty. And because this room was in a laboratory kind of uh, building, they were able to, to make this room the way they exactly, exactly the way they needed it for their study. And so there was, there's nothing on the walls, nothing. I was just totally stark, unadorned, empty room. And people were asked to sit in there somewhere between six minutes and 15 minutes. Some, could, some were in there as long as 15 minutes, some were in there as, long, as little as six minutes, and they were asked to sit in there with no cell phone. <gasps> what is this, the apocalypse? No cell phone, no book, no paper, no pen, no pencils, nothing to read, nothing to write with, nothing to fiddle with. Not surprisingly, most of the people who participated in this study said they did not find it to be an enjoyable experience. On average, they said it was difficult to concentrate. Their minds were constantly wandering around. And then they they threw a kind of a wrinkle in this. They said, okay, now you're going to sit in this room, same empty room, except there's a button. And this button, if you press it, will give you a mild electric shock. Now, 
prior to putting them in the room, they let every one of these participants experience just how mild this electric shock was. All of them got to experience it. And every single one of them said, yeah, I'd like to never experience that again. In fact, many of them said, I would pay money to never experience that again. Like, that was so unpleasant that, please, what what do I have to do? How much do I have to pay? I don't want to get shocked again. That's what they said. And then they were put in this room again, this empty, iPhone-less room. No pen or paper or books or magazines, no pictures, no paintings, with this button. Six out of 24 women pressed the button. <laughs> like, well, okay, uh, it's a quarter. It's not bad. 12 out of 18 men pressed the button. What's wrong with us? Just sitting there. I'll I'll let the social scientists come up with the proper responsible conclusions after a study like this, but I can't help but wonder if we're getting quite used to the buzz of another text, another email, refreshing Twitter one more time, just, just in case somebody happened to retweet my tweet. How come nobody favorited my tweet? I posted that picture yesterday of the kids, like, has anybody liked it yet? Oh, oh, there it is, three new likes. That's so awesome. So cool. So cool. Like I posted a blog. It's a Facebook. Was it, was it shared? It wasn't shared. Six new emails. Is anyone important? No, no. Just jump. Okay, yeah. Anybody know how to sit and be alone anymore? I don't. It's hard, isn't it? This series that we're going to do is a short two-week series called Addicted to Busy, and it's based on Pastor Brady's new book, Addicted to Busy. And I have to say, a month ago, or maybe it was a few weeks ago, I sat down and read it, and it is an enjoyable, easy, and very helpful read, which is a good thing, because if you look at a book that says Addicted to Busy, you're probably going to say, a book? Ain't nobody got time for that. You know? (laughs) I don't read no book on being busy. I'm too busy for that. So fortunately, it's very well written, and it's it's, 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 it's accessible, it's very helpful, And what I wanted to do for these two weeks, this week and next week, is to play with this metaphor a little bit of addiction. I think it's an interesting metaphor. Because addictions are are funny things. I mean, none of us would say, I'm busy because I'm addicted to it. None of us would say, I'm busy because I like it. Most of us would say, oh, I'm busy because I'm doing important things. I'm busy because my work really is pressing or this is my favorite it's just a busy season that leads into another busy season that backs up against just another busy stretch and none of us all of us would say you know i'm doing important work this is this is necessary this is you know something i have to do or maybe and i don't want to be careful here because for for some of us the busyness is not the result of our choosing it's the result of a crisis. It's the result of a, a health situation or, a, or a, a family member who's ill. And you're saying, look, I didn't choose this to deal with aging parents or a sick child or a, a, a you know, I, it's just, this is how life is. I get that. This isn't so much about those situations. 
But for others of us, we find ourselves in this place where the pace just keeps going. It's relentless. And I wonder if this is a little bit like what happens when you talk to people who've developed dependencies on prescription drugs. Because you start taking a prescription drug because there's a legitimate thing. There's this chronic pain. There's this, you know. And then all of a sudden you get so used to that and you, it's hard to let it go. And I wonder if busyness is a little bit like that. Well, I, I just need to do this to get the business off the ground. I, I need to do this to get ministry going. I need to do this because the church is growing. I need to. And then you just get so used to this pace that you're not sure what you'd do with yourself if you had to stop. You're not sure what to do with yourself if you actually had to stop. How have we become so used to this feeling, so used to this pace, that we really don't know what we'd do with ourselves if we were by ourselves? The story from the Old Testament reading this morning is in Genesis 32, and it's a story of Jacob. And Jacob's interesting because he's a twin and he's the younger of the the two. In fact, he gets his name because he was grasping at his brother's heel. And Esau, his brother, was the one that, because he came out moments earlier, was the one that was deemed the firstborn. And so Esau was the one who had the birthright. Esau was the one who had the blessing. And Jacob was not. But never one to admit defeat. Jacob, ever the scrappy planner, schemer devised a little plan with some help from a scheming mom. And he decides he's going to put some animal skin on his arm so he can impersonate Esau, which makes you think Esau was one hairy dude. (laughs) And Jacob goes into his dad's tent where his father's eyesight is failing. And he goes in there and he claims the birthright and the blessing. And then his mom says, okay, you need to get out of here. Things are going to get ugly. It's like when Scar says to Simba, run away, (laughs) run away, Simba. Only, you know, anyway, so there's obviously some differences, but but Jacob realizes I need to get out of here, you know, (laughs) and he does, and he gets out, he gets out of town, he goes to work for his uncle Laban, he realizes there's a daughter that she really loves, so he says, okay, seven years and I'll work and I'll get Rachel in marriage, except he doesn't get Rachel. He gets Leah. I mean, this is like soap opera stuff, you know, like on the night of the wedding, he's like, "Ah!" talk about issues. And then he has to work another seven years for the one he really wanted. And then now he's got two women living in his home with their servants and he's fathering children with all four of them. That's a sermon for another day. (laughs) Suffice it to say, Jacob's in a mess. But he's at the same time, making something of himself, making something of his life. And then he tries to leave, but Laban says, yeah, if you leave now, you're not getting any of my stuff. I didn't give you any stock options. Except in this case, stock options was like livestock, <laughs> the real thing. And Jacob says, well, how many more years before I get stock options? Just six more years. Okay, just six more years until I become senior partner, honey. And you too, honey. <laughs> get that? Anyway, yeah, okay. Six more years and I get stock options and then we'll have the life we've always wanted. Six more years and the Bible says after 20 years, Jacob finally leaves. But now he's realizing he's got some shadows from his past. I mean, this is, this is really, this would be a fanta- fantastic movie, wouldn't it? One man chasing down the mistakes of a dark past. And he's on this mission to go back and find Esau. 
and hope that everything will be okay, hope that he can somehow make it right. Jacob, after all, is a schemer. Jacob knows how to make things work. And so Jacob's got it planned out. He's got it scripted. He's saying, okay, listen, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to say. He set aside a few of his stock options to give to his brother and say, look, take some of these livestock. These are gifts from not your brother, Jacob. The wording is very careful in the story. He says, these are gifts from your servant, Jacob. Just, just a little PR, just a little manipulation, just a little something to grease the wheels. Just Jacob knows how to work the systems, and he's got a plan for this. But I think there's something in this story that will help us in our conversation about busyness. And where I want to start here in week one is to say, let's diagnose the problem. Let's diagnose the problem underneath the surface. Verse 22, that same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. Okay, picture this. I mean, Jacob's traveling with essentially like a circus, okay? He's got all of these animals. He's got all of these people and servants and children, and it's noisy, I'm married to one woman. We have four children. Our house is loud. Not sure how loud Jacob's traveling circus was. We have no pets. They have like all these animals, goats and cows and Jacob's friends. Okay, okay. y'all go across the river first. And they all go across the river. and And the storyteller says it this way. And Jacob was left alone. Finally, alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. What is the noise around you? What is the chaos around you? Are you ever left alone? Are you ever allowed space from it? Do you ever send it over the river and be left alone? Or does this noise mask something more troubling inside of us? Does this stuff, the pace, really bury a hidden loneliness or sadness or even weariness? Or maybe it's a fear. I began earlier this year seeing a spiritual director once a month. And a spiritual director, it's an interesting thing because it's kind of like grape nuts. It's neither, you know, grape nuts, they're not really grape, they're not really nuts. You know, spiritual directors sometimes, sometimes it's not very spiritual and sometimes it's not very directive, you know. what, What is it? But a spiritual director is someone who helps you pay attention to the Holy Spirit's work, who helps you create this space. And I've appreciated having a person that's a voice from a person who's off the grid, off the staff grid for me. And we talk very often about how things in life become masks for deeper things. They cover it over. Maybe it's pace. Maybe it's, it's ego that actually masks insecurity. Maybe it's busyness that actually masks fear. Or in other situations... You can imagine, you've heard this from counselors, where we sexualize it. And so, 
oftentimes in church, all you hear about sexual sin is, well, just stop. That's a sin. Just stop. Instead of saying, could you be letting a loneliness or a sadness or a weariness manifest through sexual behavior when actually what you need is not more and better and newer and more exciting sex, but actually what you need is the Spirit of God to heal that lonely, sad, weary soul. How is it that we never face these things? Maybe it's because we never let ourselves. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, for years, this used to be the point of the story. You see, you've got to just take hold of God and refuse to be denied and just make him bless you. Hallelujah. (laughs) But the story, to me, as I read it now at 36, is not about a man who won't give up until God blesses him. It's about a man who finally comes face to face with his real name. Because listen to what comes next. Jacob asks for a blessing. But the man says to him, what is your name? What is your name? No, 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 I want a blessing. I want something that will help me get ahead because I need to keep getting ahead. I go, I got stuff to do. He says, no, 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 let's back this up. What's your name? Huh? What? See, names, of course, in Hebrew culture, it's so much more than something to call you. (laughs) A name is your identity. A name is emblematic of your destiny. So Jacob's father, Isaac, was given the name Laughter because he was a gift of joy to parents who thought they would never have children. Names mean something deep in the Old Testament. And actually, Jacob had been asked his name before. The only other story in Genesis where Jacob was asked, what is your name, was when on that day when he went into his father's tent with animal skin covered on his arms. And his dad says, well, what's your name? And he says, Esau. Esau. What's my name? (laughs) I'm the good son. I'm the one who does it right. I'm the hunter, I'm the strong one, I'm the one who gets the blessing, that's who I am. This time, on this dark and lonely night, the stranger says, what is your name? And Jacob finally says the truth. My name? The one who grasps at the heel. The deceiver. The manipulator, the one who's always trying to scheme and get ahead. Yeah, nah, that's me. That's my name. What we desperately need is to be able to have enough space to come face to face with ourselves. To come face to face with ourselves and to say, you know what? All of this busyness, all of this stuff, all the money, the car, the this, the that, all that, that's just, it's really, it's a cover because my real name is fearful. (laughs) My real name is insecure. My real name is legalist. My real name is never good enough. My real name is almost there. 
That's how I really see myself. Person's just a little short, just uh, never quite living up to my parents' expectations, never quite. That's my real name. The story, thank God, doesn't end there. Jacob finally comes face to face with himself and he says his name. And and the stranger says, your name shall no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael. No longer the one who grasps at the heel, but the prince with God. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And Jacob's all, why didn't I think of that? And there he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which literally means Pene, the face, El, God, the face of God. He says, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Now think of this. With God, we never just come face to face with ourselves. We also come face to face with God. When we finally leave ourselves this space, it's not simply about saying, oh, I need to face myself. No, no, it's saying, no, I, you need to come face to face with God. Because the result of coming face to face with God is that you're changed. You're transformed. You're made new. What is that? What is that moment? I wonder if often when we come to God and we do confess something deep inside, say, God, I, do, I am fearful, I am striving, I do, I, that we imagine that God's response is, mm-hmm, yep, mm-hmm. And we imagine that if we really did come face to face with ourselves and then came face to face with God, that the face of God would surely be an angry and disappointed face. At the very least, the face of God would be one of just displeasure, of saying, "Mm, yeah, I wish you could do a little better. And we're all too willing to say, I know, I know, I know. But the gospel tells us a different story, doesn't it? John says, when we saw Jesus, we beheld the glory of God. John says, when we look at the face of Jesus, we really see the face of God. Well, what is the face of Jesus? Let's see, was Jesus himself a a man addicted to busyness? I find it ironic that for all of our Messiah complexes, our need to save the world, that the actual Messiah was not in such a hurry. Jesus is never in the Gospels found running, even though he's frequently late. Hallelujah. (laughs) That Jesus spends the first 30 years of his life in obscurity, such obscurity that there doesn't seem to be any stories worth preserving about it. 30, our culture, we make lists of the top 30 under 30. Because if you're 30 and you haven't done something, it's like, man, what's the matter with you? You don't have any drive? What did Jesus do under 30? Uh, uh. This is Jesus. Then when he knows he has about three years or so of ministry, 
he hangs out in this countryside, this Galilean countryside. And you're like, Jesus, I don't know how to say this, but if you want maximum impact, you should go to Rome. Rome. You could be a star. <laughs> Jesus is like, I, I, I made the stars. I don't need to be a star. What do we see when we look at the face of Jesus? Do we see a God who's driven by performance? Do we see a man who's driven by performance? When Jesus reveals the Father, does he reveal a Father who's a taskmaster, who's saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, get, get with it, come on, Jesus. Does, Jesus. does Jesus show us a God who is cracking the whip? Does Jesus show us a God who is constantly saying, do more, be more, get more? Does Jesus show us a God... <laughs> And a kind of relationship where he says, ah, you know, I'm, uh, I know there's all these sick people here, but I'm going to go away and pray. So say what? Th- they're all here. Right. But Jesus, you literally are the only one who has what they need. Right. I'm going to go pray. Okay? What do you see when you see the face of Jesus? Above all, what we see in the face of Jesus, it's a God who calls you son and daughter before you could even do anything for him. Think about our New Testament reading where John says, this same John who says, we see in Jesus the glory of the Father. This John says, you know what? The Father calls us children of God. This is what we are. This is who we are. The world doesn't know it. The world sees you as a cog in the system. The world sees you as another person crunching numbers. The world sees you as another person who's going to build more, get better, achieve more metrics, increase the bottom line. The world sees you as an investment, as a resource, as a blah, blah, blah. But the Father sees you as a son or a daughter. That's it. So we don't work from how the world sees us. We work from how the Father sees us. And even Jesus says to his disciples, y'all, before you get on the wrong foot here, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. I don't don't want you living this out in a panic. Like, I got to serve God. I want you to do this because we're friends. Think of how that changes everything. It, It may be that your schedule doesn't change dramatically, but it might be that the way you move through your schedule changes dramatically. And all of a sudden, you're not saying, okay, I, I'm going to host a meal group. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Not from a place of saying, I have to, I need to, I ought to. What will they think if I don't? But you're able to say, you know what? I feel like Jesus is inviting me to serve alongside him like friends do. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that as a son, as a daughter. Not because of FOMO, fear of missing out. Because of something deep inside, our name has changed. The place that Jacob called Peniel, the place where he sees the face of God, for us, we call it Calvary, where we've seen the face of God. I find that the cross is a place that we've got to revisit all the time. 
can say it this way, that our sanctification keeps returning us to our justification. Our growth in becoming more like Jesus is really rooted in going back to that place where Jesus changed your name. And Jesus changed your identity. It doesn't start out with grace and then God says, okay, now go ahead now. Let's see what you got. What begins with grace continues with grace. That Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And so we keep returning to this place. We keep saying, okay, God, without you, I can easily return to the flesh. I know this. Paul knew this. Galatians, did you think that what you began in the spirit, you could now complete in the flesh? Foolish Galatians, who bewitched you? Who tricked you into thinking that? No, 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 no. Come back to this. This grace that saved you is the same grace that carries you. This is why the storyteller ends this story by telling us that Jacob from that day on always walked with a limp. Everything was different now. Everything was different. That's us, isn't it? Jesus has given you a new name. He's given you his name. And whatever our busyness might be masking, whatever our pace may be covering, Jesus wants to heal that place. Jesus wants to reshape that place so that ever and always you say, I am what I am because of the grace of God. I keep growing in this because of the Spirit's work in me. Next week, we'll talk more about how we stop, how we find rest. We'll talk about Sabbath. We'll talk about a a, a rhythmic kind of rest. But we'll also talk about a rest that happens in the midst of chaos. Because for some of us, like, hey, man, I just, this is a stretch for real, like a newborn. Like, I, I, I can't, you know, whatever the situations are, I cannot physically actually do a Sabbath. That may be nice for you, like church people, you know, preacher man. You can do a praise break. You know, he's like, I got to keep working. Okay, okay, I get that. And next week, we'll talk about different ways to engage and live in this rest. One of them as a rhythm and one of them as just a, um, a, a lifestyle. But before we could even get into any of that next week, we needed to start here. We needed to start here. Every week, we do confession, not as a way of saying, remember how lousy you are. Every week, we do confession to say, Remember how good God is. Remember how much his grace abounds to you. We get to that point in the prayer where it says, now for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Well, when? That, that's already happened. He's already extended it. You, we're not asking for something that has not already been given. So why do we come? We come to rehearse our Peniel moment. We come to rehearse the Calvary moment. We come to reenact the drama of the gospel to say, God, I am never leaving this moment. I'm always saying again and again and again, I need you. Every hour I need you. I'm still here. I don't want to live out of my flesh. I don't want to live out of my fear. I don't want to live out of my panic. I don't want to live out of frenetic. I I just, I want to live from the rest that comes from trusting your grace, from knowing that is not my name anymore. Your name is not the fearful one. 
Your name is not the forgotten one. Your name is not the second best, the almost there, the never good enough. That is not your name. Your name is beloved. Amen?